Hi friends and welcome back to another episode of Open House, a fresh, fun and real podcast where I, Louise Rumble, invite you inside the therapy room with me to learn from some of the very best psychologists, therapists and sex and intimacy coaches that I have found. No topic is off the table, no question too juicy and no experience too shameful. At Open House, everyone is welcome. And we're on a mission to develop a new mental health experience for all because we believe that true happiness is coming home to yourself under the layers and layers of you that society has told you to be. As ever, please remember that this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and you should always seek professional medical help when necessary. Now, let's get into it and I'll see you on the other side. Hi, my friends. Today's episode is a really, really interesting one. Not only am I obsessed with Dr. Marielle, when her team emailed me, I was like, oh my goodness, I love this woman. I'm so excited to have her on. But also, I just think what we are talking about is so important. Now, we've never, ever touched on the topics of cycle breaking or intergenerational trauma in depth like we have done today. And when we start to do the work, I think we mainly start to think about ourselves. We start to tap into ourselves and how we feel and how we show up in the world. Then when we go a little bit deeper, we maybe start to think about the people that we date or the people that we attract, the people that we engage with and the family members around us that have shaped us into the people that we are today. Today's episode helps you take that line of vision one step further. It opens your horizons to how your own personal experiences your family dynamics and your family stories didn't actually start in this generation. They started generations ago and thoughts, behaviors, beliefs, coping mechanisms, stories, responses, and so many other things have actually been passed down generation to generation long before you first came into contact with them. For me, a huge part of my own healing journey has been thinking about the way that my parents were parented and how that has made them the way that they are today. And when you do that, you start to understand a little bit better that your parents are the way they are because of who they came into contact with in their childhood and teenage years and how they were parented. And that there is intergenerational trauma. So today, whether it's right now, whether it's during or whether it's after the episode, I want you to think about the patterns that run through your family that you might never have really shone a flashlight on until today. I've done this work with my own family and at the back end of last year, I went to visit one of my best friends in LA and to be part of her family unit, who I love so much. And being in another family unit, I was also able to connect the dots and see how many similarities there were between family members and patterns that had repeated through the first generation down into this generation. The truth is, this isn't a cookie cutter approach. There are tons of intergenerational cycles. Maybe this is how your family communicates or how they don't communicate. Maybe it's abuse and violence and how patterns of anger or frustration or conflict show up in multiple generations. Maybe it's emotional disconnection and how your parents or grandparents' lack of emotional attunement or even neglect by their parents can be passed down in their own parenting styles to you, leading to repercussions and follow-on difficulties in how you today might struggle in forming emotional connections with others. Similarly, the way that you have viewed marriage or divorce in the generation above you and above that 
might also shape your own experience or perception around what love or marriage means. And the same can go for infidelity too. Maybe it's more in the physical space. So maybe the generational traumas in your family relate to addiction or substance abuse or diseases or chronic pain that you see being passed down through the family. Or maybe it's mental health challenges. In today's episode, we talk about how the statement depression runs in the family or anxiety runs in the family doesn't cover the whole spectrum of truth around that statement. Maybe it's socioeconomic struggles that your family has gone through, where your family was battling cycles of poverty, financial instability, or social disadvantage. Or equally on the flip side, maybe it's privilege or white privilege that your family has gone through, which has shaped the remaining generations to come. Whichever side the coin has landed for you, you need to be aware of how the generations that have come before you and the dynamics that you were born into have shaped you, your relationship with yourself, and your relationship with the world. And this can also extend to cultural and identity conflicts. So things like war, genocide, the Holocaust, trauma that was experienced by our ancestors that have shaped the way that subsequent generations perceive their cultural heritage, and also how we hold that stress in our body. There are so many generational cycles. I've just touched on some of them there. And one thing that Dr. Marielle says at the end of the episode is how mapping out a family tree can be really helpful to see what you might have been experiencing, shouldering or carrying that you didn't even know about. For me, when I went through that exercise, I saw shame. I saw children being born out of wedlock and being given up for adoption and that being kept secret for 20 years until it came to light. I found divorce. I found prison sentences. I found abandonment, chronic pain, war, bankruptcy, and most of all, huge patterns around silence and communication. Working through that family tree exercise was really eye-opening for me. So I hope that that's a journey that you can go on, even if you just grab a pen and a piece of paper and you start to jot down some of the things that were going on in the family around you. This exercise in this episode is hopefully such a powerful way for you to open up your horizon to what else you might have been carrying that maybe you never even realized. And the mechanism for that is trauma, intergenerational trauma, and epigenetics, all of which we get into today. Now, let's get into it. I love you guys. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Open House Podcast. Today, I am so excited to have Dr. Marielle Bouquet here with me. She is someone that I've wanted to record with ever since I found her on Instagram, I think it was, where I discovered you during COVID. She's the host of Tea Time. If she did not get you through COVID, then I honestly do not know what you were doing with your time because honestly, this amazing woman was like the light in some of the darkness for me. So I am so happy to have her here. It's definitely like a bucket list moment for me, but I also know that what we're going to be talking about today is going to be so powerful for everyone listening. She's a dedicated and visionary holistic psychologist, and truly, I believe that Dr. Marielle is driving this paradigm shift in trauma-informed care and mind-body healing. She has a PhD from Columbia. She might just be the first therapist that you've ever seen to be hosting sound baths, and anyone here knows that is my jam. We are going to get into all of that and more today, but most of all, we are going to be talking about what intergenerational trauma is how you can be a cycle breaker, and so much more. So first of all, welcome, welcome, welcome. How are you today? 
Oh, that was such a beautiful introduction. Thank you so much for your kind words and for having me. And I'm doing well. I'm feeling like my nervous system is really settled today. So I'm very happy about that. How are you? That's so beautiful. I think when we find those moments of calm, it's so nice to sit with them and Mm -hmm. in them. I wish I could say the same, but (laughs) this morning I've had one of those mornings where I'm like, I have two cats in this house, my boyfriend's cat. And then we rescued a little cat out of the trash here in Mexico. And that kitten is crazy. He knows when I'm going to record and he's like, I'm going to smash everything off all of the counters. So right before this recording, I was like, hey, buddy, I need you to just calm down so I can do this really important recording. So I'm glad that you're feeling calm. I'm definitely feeling a little bit less, but I know you have such beautiful energy and I'm sure that by the end of today, I'm going to really have grounded back into that. Now, let's just get straight into everything we're going to be talking about today. And I'd love to just start by asking you what your explanation of trauma is. I think that we're seeing this become such a buzzword today. And it's so important that I always ask every practitioner that comes on here, what does it mean to you? Mm -hmm. Trauma is the experience that we have around events that really rattle us, right? And more specifically, it's the ways in which we have continuously coped through the circumstances and any idea that circumstance might repeat itself. And what I mean by that is, in essence, develop coping mechanisms or coping strategies or even one might say like nervous system state to actually get us through the initial event that happened or set of events. And eventually that just becomes the default of how we cope through life. And it becomes what we call in essence, a trauma response. I think that reference about nervous system states is so important because I know a lot of people listening will be like, I never went through anything that was that traumatizing. Nothing that bad happened to me. And that might be their language. It might be the language of their parents. My mom has definitely said to me before, like, well, at least you're not in a refugee camp in Syria. And I'm like, yeah, that's a very valid point. But also at the same time, like what I'm going through is really shaking me to the core. So do you find in your practice that sometimes people will have gone through things that they don't understand the magnitude of the biological response that maybe they hold on to? I think many of us, if not the majority of humanity, is in a place where we don't understand and are not connected to the immense biological impact that the stressors that we go through has caused us and have caused the people that came before us. We are literally unaware. At least we were very much unaware maybe before the last three to four years. I think since the COVID-19 pandemic hit, many of us have been more attuned to the fact that we have trauma states that live inside of our bodies, that we have ways in which we've internalized many experiences that have felt deeply stressful, and we just haven't really taken the time to recognize that and then do something about it. I think you're so right. Well, if you're on your healing journey, you might just be starting to think this didn't start with me. And I know a big part of my personal therapy journey was exploring silence, like why there was so much silence in my direct family unit. And that's as a result of having a father who's on the autism spectrum and the silence around emotions that can come with that. But part of my journey was then looking back and starting to understand, oh, that silence didn't start in this family unit. It started so many generations back. And 
I'd love it if you could just start to introduce this term intergenerational trauma. Now maybe people understand what trauma itself is in the present day. Yeah, absolutely. So intergenerational trauma is the only trauma that gets handed down the family line. And it happens at the intersection of our biology, so our genetic makeup and the genetic expressions that get passed on from our parents, even from our grandparents, great-grandparents, and so forth. And it also is a part of what happens within our psychology. So it's everything that isn't necessarily biological, but is perhaps the misattunement that happened when you were just a baby because you had a parent that was themselves in trauma and they weren't able to really connect with you and build that emotional foundation and bond that you needed in that very tender moment in your life. It's the modeling of trauma responses that we've seen growing up because our parents were, let's say, numbing with alcohol or having these really aggressive, angry outbursts whenever they felt a sense of stress or that they themselves were disappearing and created abandonment wounds, right? Like it's in all of those things. And then beyond our parents, it's also like when we enter the school system, if we experience this experience of bullying, or if we were in a really toxic relationship with someone, it's all of that is really captured in the psychology. What we need for intergenerational trauma to be something that we know, okay, we're talking about intergenerational trauma is that we need that biological inheritance matched with the psychological experiences to actually say we're working with not trauma, but intergenerational trauma. I love how you've touched on like the psychological, which is the story that we hold about it and the biological, which is like where we hold that story. And I think that something that people still maybe haven't quite got their head around is quite how it can go from generation to generation. And from what I know, part of that is around epigenetics and gene expression. Is that something you'd feel comfortable just giving us a little overview on what that is and how these stories can pass down through so many generations? Ah, Yeah. So epigenetics is the study of how environments influence how genes express themselves. Just to get us on common ground about that, because very often what we need to understand about intergenerational trauma is situated in epigenetics and in the ways in which we come from. I'm going to go down the family line and I'm going to start with grandma. And let's say that grandma was pregnant with your mother when your mother was five months old inside of the womb still, like still developing a five-month fetus. You had already been inside of your mother's reproductive organs, meaning that you were this tiny little microscopic cell that would be either an ovum or a sperm cell. And regardless of whether you were one or the other, you were already taking in all of the experiences that your grandmother was having in that very moment. Meaning that if your grandmother was experiencing a stressor, let's say that she was fighting with her spouse and this was an ongoing experience. They're fighting and, you know, she's feeling high levels of stress. She's also producing the stress hormone called cortisol that's filtering through her bloodstream at really elevated states. And that is filtering into her five-month baby, which is your mother, and then onto you. So already when we're talking about biology, we're talking about two generations ago, before you were ever even conceived, you were already taking in the stressors of the environment 
that your family was creating or the stressors of the environment that your family was succumbed to because sometimes it's not the family that's creating it, but maybe they're in deep poverty because they hold like a marginalized identity connected to poverty. Or maybe there's someone that is experiencing racial discrimination or maybe there were someone who was a part of a community that was targeted by violence, right? And so all of that is a part of the lived experience of your grandma at that moment, which is then creating that hormonal upsurge of stress, which is being internalized by her five-month-old, which is also being internalized by all of the cells in that five-month-old, including you. So it becomes something that programs very early on as far as just an emotional tenderness and vulnerability because of so much that's happening around stress in all of these three bodies that are existing in one. So that's the very start of it, right? So we have to consider that element of it. But also when we're talking about epigenetic language, your grandmother still would have had enough of those like circumstances that would have caused her stress that would have then sent a message to her genes, right? So her genes would have started to receive these messages. We're in a stressed body. We're in a traumatized body. We're always under stress, always under trauma. And what happens is a genetic re-encoding, if you may. And what it's called is actually a re-expression, which means that her genes are turning on or off depending on how much stress she's experiencing. And that genetic re-expression is also being translated forward to your mother in utero and then onto you. So we have all of these internal messages that are driven by our biology that are telling our genes to either turn on or off certain markers in response to whatever is happening in our world, whatever stressors are happening. So when we're talking about epigenetics, typically we talk about epigenetics just in one body, but epigenetics translates into multiple bodies. And we've seen that in multiple studies that we've been able to orient around individuals that have undergone. But right now it's like when we're getting really an, an understanding of, okay, this is something that tends to happen to a lot of us, happened a long time ago before preconception. And it's something that we must take into consideration as far as what emotional vulnerabilities are present in our bodies whenever we're undergoing any of the stressors in our present lives. This is so amazing because I think that when you start to do the work, you understand the power of the family unit, but maybe you don't take it back even further. And I've never thought about what my grandma was going through or how that might have impacted me. And even just sitting here, I'm like, oh, okay, well, my grandma was alive during the war and she lost her brother in the war and they never found him. He never came home. He just disappeared. And then on top of that, her husband went to prison. And it's like, I'm sat here today, never really connecting the dots. But you, I think, are really inspiring people to understand that maybe the life that they're living today has not just been created by their own choosing. It's really like biologically wired into us. Do you think that on this healing journey, there is power in looking back at our stories? Like how much does psychologically or consciously or rationally understanding what happened to us help on the more biological piece of healing? I love this question so much. I don't think I've gotten this question ever. Really? Yeah. Like in an interview, like I think this is the first time it's been framed in that way and I can really appreciate it. And I'll be honest with you, I wouldn't have devoted my life's mission and work to intergenerational healing and written this book, Break the Cycle, had I not 
really not only believed that it is an essential part of our healing to be able to look back at the previous wounds, but it also is something that I have been able to see as a clinician, like really see the lives of my clients transformed by their ability to dig up some of the wounds of the past. And I will add a caveat to that in saying that it is also a part of the reason why I have been able to really centralize the work around holistic healing because I don't believe in digging up past wounds and deep wounds without first helping a person to ground themselves and orient themselves in a way that feels safe enough so that their bodies can hold their stories in a way that doesn't feel overwhelming. So it's part of the reason why I always go in the direction of we have to ground, we have to settle the nervous system, we have to find a way to help you reorient and regulate prior to actually getting to the work of digging. Even the work that I do and even the way that I wrote the book, which is reflective of the ways that I do the work, is first grounding, then excavating, and then integrating. It really follows that process for a reason, because I don't want people peeling back all the wounds if they don't have first the actual coping strategies that are going to be helpful to help them with all of the things that they're going to be uncovering. And that's that concept of becoming re-traumatized. Am I correct? People are saying, oh, you need to be careful which coaches or practitioners you're working with because you may get re-traumatized by bringing up the trauma. What does that re-traumatizing concept actually mean? Is it that we live it again? Yes. And beyond living it again, because triggers are in essence ways that we feel like we're living an experience again. Re-traumatization means that you're adding trauma on top of the trauma And so it is basically traumatizing you within the same ideas or within the same issue, but making you feel like you have now a cumulative and added burden of trauma on top of what you already had. And I can appreciate what you're saying because there have been times as a psychologist that's working as a clinician have actually taken in clients that have come to me with the wounds that have been inflicted by practitioners that haven't known how to orient around this work and have left them in states where they felt like their lives were unlivable. It's something that just really gnaws at me because trauma is so tender. It's such a tender area of mental health work. And it is tender in part because we're talking about people that have deep vulnerabilities that need to be tended to and catered to in a way that is very intentional and well-oriented in order so as to not cause like further injury. I think having a trauma-trained society, which is what I hope that we could develop into, is going to be really important. And within that, hopefully, all of the healers and practitioners that are hoping to take in individuals as clients that are in trauma can have a very grounded sense of how to hold space and how to do the work. So I'm really hopeful that we can develop a society like that, but it's important for people to be prudent about choosing healers, for sure. I agree. I mean, going into those spaces of trauma, ultimately going back to the things that have hurt you the most, and you need to be in good hands to do that. And I really implore everyone listening that you find the right person before going on that journey. Before we get into some of the most common generational cycles that you see in practice, so people listening might be like, oh yeah, that's me, or like, oh yeah, that's me. I'd love to just preface that question by reconfirming that even though you've got this genetic makeup 
today and it's been influenced by the generations before you, you can ultimately control which of those genes express, right? Because I think some people still today think it's just my genetics, depression runs in the family, I'm just an anxious person, so is my mum. What are your thoughts on empowering people that you can have a set of genetics, but ultimately you can choose which of those genetics turn on and turn off? Mm, Yeah. So even in my book, I start the book off with a chapter called You Are a Cycle Breaker. And in You Are a Cycle Breaker, I explain that there are different characteristics that cycle breakers take on. And one of those is that we as cycle breakers do not believe in genetic determinism, meaning that the genetic makeup that we have been born into is the only way in which our bodies will be represented emotionally. And I'm fortunate to be doing the work and also writing a book in an era where I have so many fields of science and so many fields of inquiry that support how the healing process can actually impact our brains, our nervous systems, and our bodies in the long term. That we actually have the word neuroplastic to work with, which is the ways in which we can restructure even physically our brains and even our nervous system to be more programmed towards rest and ease and recovery and healing and joy and less to the stress and trauma and despair and grief and guilt and shame and all the things that it's been programmed to. I can actually exist in a generation where I can say, these are the studies that also help us to understand structurally the ways that we can actually change our bodies and make it so that the families that we come from don't become the families that come out of us. And we can redirect the direction of our lineages toward even genetic abundance, right? By way of restructuring the ways that we go about our day-to-day lives and breaking cycles and then energizing and creating neural pathways that are connected to healing, to connection, to love, to joy, to all the things that we're hoping to adopt in the healing journey. Yes, I love this. I just am so happy we're having this discussion today and empowering people to understand that ultimately this starts with you. You can make a change. You can make a biological change. You can make a psychological change. And I'd love to understand, now we're onto this topic of being able to be the cycle breaker, this incredibly beautiful and empowering, but also difficult role that you can play in doing the cycle breaking. What are some of the most common cycles that you see being passed down through generation to generation? The most common ones, my goodness, like definitely unhealthy family patterns that are situated in secret keeping. That's a big one. People that also lash out at each other and that being like a general pattern inside of a family. Multiple forms of abuse is definitely something that's been more scientifically studied. Typically, parents that have had an experience of abuse in their own childhood tend to replicate that trauma. And those tend to be like some of the higher level ones. But also with intergenerational trauma, there is also a societal element And let's say that a child is racially discriminated against because they are Black identified and through their family line, because more likely than not, they're going to have a family that shares their racial identity. There's going to be that through line of experiencing traumas in that way. And those get replicated also because we haven't, from a societal perspective, also broken cycles, right? So there's all of that. 
Yeah, this is really powerful. And I also think it's very vulnerable, some of the cycles people are going to be facing. I mean, the communication one is so important. I see it all the time. The way that your parents communicated with each other, the way they communicated with you, all of a sudden it shows up in how you communicate in your relationship. And you're like, oh, I had a father who didn't communicate with me. And now I'm in love with a man who doesn't communicate with me. When people start doing the work, they're like, oh, hold on a minute. Like I can connect A to B. But even outside of the romantic sense. I also saw with an ex-partner of mine that came from a totally different socioeconomic background and that clash between the privilege and the lack of privilege that we had lived in our own lives was profoundly life-changing for me to become a better, more well-rounded, more understanding human being. But also it enabled me to see the restrictions that he was under from so many different angles and how much more cycle-breaking he had to do in that regard than I did in my regard in that same sphere. So I think it's important that people really understand that these can show up in the physical, in the emotional, in the mental. Do you think that's fair to say? 100%. Yeah. And in the cultural, it's like that. I think of generational trauma healing as mind, body, spirit, culture healing. And even like an identity that both you and I share and as women in the society that is so deeply patriarchal and damaging to the emotional wellness of women, we also have yet another layer of how we need to break cycles and also come from out of the rubble of the generations of oppression that has been like imposed upon women. I don't believe in oppression wars. So I know that many of us have our own identities that also hold us to the margins in ways that are more deeply painful. And that's to be honored. But I think that sometimes we forget as women, we also have a ton that we have to deal with on a daily basis that is very much situated in pain. And when it comes to intergenerational trauma, because there is also that biological element, I always also stress the ways in which our bodies then metabolize the stress. And when you look at historically, like a lot of the physical illnesses, especially those that are connected to stress that are usually connected to an inflammatory response women tend to prototypically disproportionately assume a lot of those chronic diseases much more than men, especially autoimmune conditions, you know, at a much larger scale than men. I believe about 80% or so of autoimmune conditions are held in women's bodies, right? And so that alone is to tell you that the ways that we have to internalize stress is also something that we have to account for from a generational perspective. Oh, you are talking my language here because I talk about this all the time on the podcast, but you won't know this. So I'll just recap it for you. But I went through a big trauma when I was 18 and I developed a chronic pain disorder, like right off the bat, lived with it ever since. And actually that's what took me into therapy was because I had tried everything. You know, I'd thrown all the money at all the doctors and someone just said to me, Oh, have you looked into this new field of emotional suppression? and how trauma can be held in the body and can turn into pain cycles. And that's ultimately why we're sat here talking today, because I'm like, this is healing, learning to release the emotions that we are storing and lodging within us. I'd love to just ask you if you've looked into all those studies, and I'm sure you have because you're the expert here, around emotional suppression and connection to things like breast cancer. For people listening, I'd love it if we could just say that this isn't woo-woo. This is really happening. It's really being studied and it's really showing up as the truth. Absolutely. So there are so many mappings that have taken place in the recent years in reference to connecting physical ailments like cancers, multiple types of cancers to 
actual stress that is experienced and metabolized in the body. The same goes with lupus. The same goes with multiple sclerosis, Alzheimer's. It's almost too many to even name, but it almost makes you wonder why we haven't been looking at stress as that root cause and addressing stress as a root cause to a lot of these diseases. We go to these doctors and prototypically we go to a doctor because we have a discomfort in some area and then a specific organ or area is targeted by that doctor. The cardiologist will focus on your heart, but won't really focus on the ways in which stress has been permeating through your family line and in your life to such an extent that it has caused an ailment of the heart that has then translated into physical disease and heart disease and, you know, heart attacks and all kinds of complications of the heart. And so a part of what my call to action with Break the Cycle is for all of us in society, but of course for the health system, to also address the ways in which we've disconnected the stress theory from the actual physical implications, because we have so much research and data that is burgeoning that is telling us, listen, there's a real connection here. And a part of the healing may be situated in how we address the stress. Yeah, I love this so much. And much like you were saying that one of your key drivers is to hope for change for a trauma-informed society. One of mine is exactly this, that I hope people can understand that their physical ailments and diseases are actually rooted in something so much deeper than just getting sick. One day your body just decided to get sick. That isn't quite how it works. And I'd love to go into here more of the mental health space around intergenerational trauma. So let's talk about people that are depressed. Okay. My family have said, oh, we have depression running in the family and mainly on, on my mom's side. And when I was younger, I would think I'm depressed and I would think, oh, it, it just runs in the family. My mom would say, oh, it just runs in the family. The more and more that I've stepped into this space, I've learned all the things that you talk about, you know, in the book and in your practice. And I'm like, hold on a second. No, these big mental health diagnoses don't have to necessarily be passed down generation to generation. So if someone is sat here listening to this today saying, yes, I'm depressed. I have X, Y, or Z, and it just runs in the family. How would you tie that back to potentially intergenerational trauma or even just trauma? So interesting. In the very same first chapter, your cycle breaker, I actually start with a quote that says, when they tell you it runs in the family, you tell them this is where it runs out, which is something that continues to be a very longstanding debate in the mental health arena in that we've been able to see that there have been multiple genetic ties to specific mental health conditions. But if you look at the actual experiences around those mental health conditions, you, you start to realize that there are stories behind it, behind even the genetic elements that it happens to be that genetically, yes, there's this connection, but a part of why there is a connection is because we haven't had the tools to say, hey, there's a genetic connection. We should probably do something about how we are experiencing ourselves in the moment and like how we're orienting around healing so that it won't continue. I think there's still a lot to do as far as research with a lot of mental health conditions, but what I have seen to be true is the fact that more than a genetic through line, there is a through line of psychological experiences and pain. And we have to remember even how epigenetics work, whatever's happening in the environment that's turning those genes on or off, right? We can have a predisposition, but we won't necessarily have surfaced trauma symptoms if we have enough nurturance, enough care, enough orientation around our emotions, enough feelings of safety, 
especially in those primary areas where we're raised. There's so many sociological factors that also take place that can also modify the ways that our genetic makeup tends to express itself. And so that's something that we need to hold in consideration and just like really zoom out and see the fact that even if there are genetic connections, that there are also ways in which we can re-express and reformat the ways that our bodies are taking in stress. Yes. And I think that people are starting to understand more and more how the nervous system ties into this and the concepts of nervous system regulation, even co-regulation. But I'd love it if you could explain to me what a life of nurturance, safety and care looks like coming from an expert for anyone that is on this journey and perhaps they haven't assessed those things. Is that to yourself? Is that from others? Is it all of those combined? What does that mean? Well, the initial places where we find safety, care, nurturance are with our primary caregivers. It's at that very tender stage of infancy where we're looking at them for social cues, like in their nonverbal expressions that say, you're okay, I'm here, I'm present. The world that you're existing in this very moment is safe because I am holding you. I am the container. And there's also all the other things that also tie into nurturance. Some of the biological things that we do with babies, right? It's we feed them, we burp them, we change them, we help them to feel comfortable. And all of that is a part of the initial mechanisms of like, there is safety here. But then throughout life, it starts becoming a little bit more both the nurturance that we're getting from our primary caregivers, but also the rest of the world. And then also the nurturance that we're able to offer ourselves, which is until this whole self-care phenomenon, we haven't really been talking about in society the ways that we care for ourselves. This is a very new, very millennial-esque kind of idea about how we should show up for ourselves. We've always had this nurturance comes from other places, and it's been a bit of a disservice that we've done to each other to not really acknowledge the ways that we need to care for ourselves also. But the initial places that psychological safety comes from is from our parents, is from our caregivers. And we then learn that there is a place that we can say there's safety. And then that translates into us internalizing, I am safe, I am well, I am cared for, and I can go about my life. I can go into the world, you know, feeling that I have security within me. It's really the initial like undercurrent of secure attachment. It's saying, I know that there are people that I can go to that will hold me in safety. And so I know that people can be trusted and I know that I can form healthy connections with people. And as a result, I feel safe and secure within my relationship with others. Oh, I'm so glad that we're talking about these concepts of like self-love and self-care because I've always said that they're very abstract. I think people think self-care, oh, I'll just take a bubble bath or self-love sitting there saying to themselves, I love myself, I love myself. And it doesn't work like that at all. And I think for me, a profound part of my healing journey has been learning to build an embodied relationship with myself where I have made friends with my nervous system after a lifetime of being disconnected from it. And that's why I love the work you do. And I really just want to get into sound healing. Like when I watch these videos of you doing this beautiful healing practice, I'm like, this is healing. This is collective healing, what you are doing, what you are teaching us the importance of. I would just love to understand how that came into your practice, why it's so profoundly important to you, but also how it can help us with all the things that we've spoken about in today's episode. (laughs) Yes. 
You know, I can really um, appreciate the conversation around sound medicine and sound bathing. Also, I actually have three sound baths that are accompanying the book and they each connect to a certain section of the book where healing is taking place. And sound baths themselves, they actually have an origin in Tibet. And thousands of years ago, the Tibetan culture and the people of Tibet used to use and continue to use these sound bowls to emit specific frequencies that would actually cause the body and the mind to really feel more at ease and and centered and decrease stress in the ways that they conceptualized stress back then. But it also was very much a spiritual practice rooted in Buddhism. And for me, like the connection to sound bathing actually came when I received a sound bowl as a birthday gift from my cousin who knew that I was on a very spiritual journey, but a journey that where I was also being trained in this fellowship of three years where I was being taught how to engage in holistic mental health. And this was literally at Columbia University Medical Center. It wasn't at a holistic center somewhere in the university where I was getting my training. And it was actually a holistic medicine fellowship that was also funded by the U.S. Department of Health and Services. And so I got an opportunity to really orient myself around the ways in which meditative practice and other kinds of grounding practices can be brought into the work. Simultaneously, I'm sitting here with the sound bowl and training around sound medicine and the integration of sound medicine or meditation in whatever form into my work. And so when I first started using sound bowls, I realized that I could combine not only the elements of healing and the ways that I help a person navigate through their emotions with this very potent tool that also helps to settle their nervous system. And I thought this is literally what we need. In holistic medicine, we believe that we have to integrate the whole and settle the body, right? It made so much sense to bring that integration in. And during this COVID-19 pandemic and the racial uprisings of 2020, there were a lot, we were just in deep grief. And I decided to actually play some of my favorite songs by my favorite artists and superimpose sound bathing onto those tunes. They were already healing tunes. And then I added the sound medicine. And then I also helped people to navigate through their emotions. And I was seeing the potency of that practice. And I was like, this is so beautiful and something that can reconnect us and reroute us when we feel so uprooted by everything that's happening. Oh, that's so beautiful. And I think as we come to wrap up, I'd love for people to understand what next, you know, they might think, okay, yes, great. I can do a sound bath or they might think, okay, great. I need to learn to make friends with my nervous system. There's lots of these different things. And I think that often people can feel so lost. There's so many things like the affirmations and so many things that can be done, but in terms of generational trauma and actually breaking the cycles, where should people start? And I guess my question after that is, what do people do if they cannot get access to one-to-one therapy? Does that mean that they can't break these cycles or can we empower them that, yeah, you can do this as well? Absolutely. They can break cycles even if they're not in therapy. And it's part of the reason why I wrote this book is because I wanted all of us to have some tool and resource that we can always go back to that can help us to navigate all the different layers of generational trauma. And, you know, 
settling the nervous system is going to be one of the most critical things that we can do. And especially because we live in a world where at any point in time, our nervous system can be re-uprooted. It's going to be really critical to be able to like engage in that as a lifestyle change, not just as a practice that you do for five minutes on a Sunday. And so beyond that, there's also a lot of the excavating work, which is mapping out your intergenerational trauma tree and getting a sense of how trauma responses have been reflected down your family line. And the way, and when we can actually visualize these things, we can also start to say, I don't want to continue that. I want to apologize to my children. I want to be able to have healthy relationships that aren't violent. I want to be able to say that I have broken the cycle and disrupted the status quo of how my family has operated in a state of survival for generations. And so you start doing the digging work. But beyond that, it's a lot of that integration of every time you're presented with an opportunity to break the cycle. Let's say that if you're parenting, your kid does something and you can already see that you're about to lash out and reflect the trauma response that's so familiar to you because that's how you were raised through a lot of anger and a lot of rage represented in your parents, then it is right then and there an opportunity that you have to disrupt the cycle and do it again and again and again. And remember how our brains are neuroplastic and they start forming new neural pathways and new connections to the different ways that you're behaving and you're engaging with your family and with your environment. So all of this is becoming cyclical and circular in a both biological and psychological way. So it's a beautiful, like I call it the upward spiral of like health. It's very health promoting. And you see yourself doing things differently. You engage in the beautiful emotion of pride, which then re-energizes you to do it again. Like it just becomes like breaking cycle process that can be very longstanding. And I do believe that it is possible. I've seen it. I've experienced it myself. I've seen it in my family, even people as old as my parents and even clients that I've had myself as a clinician that have been, my eldest client was 84 years old and breaking cycles. Like, oh, so I beautiful. I know. <laughs> that is so powerful. And what would you say to the people that are listening and they're like, I'm trying. This is so hard and I can't connect with my family in the same way I did because I see them for the truth of what they've lived through. And, you know, they won't change. My parents won't change. My partner won't change. What happens when you are breaking cycles, but the people around you just won't? I think that's where I want to wrap up today. And that happens to a lot of us. Cycle breakers typically are the only or the first in their family to actually disrupt. And it can be very lonely. And so, you know, looking at other cycle breakers and people that are in your community that are doing similar work can be very, very helpful. One of my besties who I met actually in grad school is somebody who I broke in cycles together with. And she's not in my bloodline, but she's somebody who... I connect with on a continuous basis and we talk about the ways that we disrupt. And so it can be very helpful to just look at community and co-heal in that way also, because you're not going to really see a lot of that reflected in your family if they're committed to keeping cycles. But also remember that the healing that you're doing is already sending a ripple effect both to your family and to like future generations. Because when you step into spaces where you typically would have fed the cycle and started yelling because they're yelling at you, but you're no longer doing that because you've settled your nervous system, you've engaged in different behaviors and are committed to breaking the cycle, you're already causing a disruption. I love it. I wish we had hours. I feel like there's so much more I want to ask you and go into. But finally, where can people get your book? Is it available now for pre-order? 
Where can people go to get that? Tell me everything. Yes. So Break the Cycle, A Guide to Healing Intergenerational Trauma is available wherever books are sold. It's also an international title. So it's reflected in various countries. And if you have trouble finding it, you can go to drmarielbouquet.com and I have a book page where I have all the links to break the cycle. Amazing. And it is a stunning website. I went on it and I was like, oh, she looks good. I was like, I need a new photo shoot because that is stunning. But yeah, I think this book is ultimately something that everybody should read. And one of our key drivers at Open House is accessibility. Not everyone has $250 for a therapy session. Not everyone can get to the top of a waiting list to go through what they need to go through. And that's why to be able to share this book with the world, to be able to share you with the world is just so aligned with everything that we stand for here. So thank you so, so much for your time. This has been so powerful and you are welcome back on the podcast whenever you would like to join. Thank you so much. It's been so wonderful being with you. See you soon.